Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three Republican experts on defense. My colleague Mark Hansian, Senior Advisor in the International Security Program here at CSIS, Jen Stewart, Republican Staff Director of the House Armed Services Committee, and Tom Mencken president and CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. We discuss views within the Republican Party on key defense issues heading into the 2020 election. Thanks very much to uh, our guests today. Let me start first with Jen and ask how you think about whether, you know, the Republican Party has a singular viewpoint, unified viewpoint on issues on defense, or if there are some fissures or differences of viewpoint in the party that we're going to see play out over the coming um, election cycle. Thank you, Kath. I would say areas where we are seeing a lot of convergence are support for allies and partners, the need to have an effective response on China, and readiness recovery. And that has come about mainly from the conversations we've been having about adequate resources for the defense budget. Tom, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would, I would agree with Jen on that. And, you know, particularly the issue of, of China. I mean, I think that's a, an area not only of Republican consensus, but I think there's a strong bipartisan consensus on, on the need to develop a, a comprehensive approach to, to compete with China. Have a different viewpoint here, Mark? I think that there are some splits on the Republican side. Strong agreement that we need a robust defense, but you have still some deficit hawks, although they've mostly been hunted to extinction. And you also have the, the nationalists, that is people like Trump who want a strong defense, but are much more focused on the United States. So this came up certainly in our in our conversations in the last few episodes. Let's let's start there for this group as well, which is this point on the allies, burden sharing, how we think about you know, the United States interests vis-a-vis common interests. And so, Jen, I'm going to go back to you. How is the Republican Party sort of wrestling through the rhetoric that the president has on allies, which emphasizes the burden-sharing point? And then, if you will, the, the strength of the documents coming out of the administration, the national defense strategy, the national security strategy that emphasize the role of allies in our security. I think Mark made a really important point, but to take that a step further, what I'm seeing is when you're talking about these issues in isolation, there is a more robust conversation. But when you're having a conversation about a specific issue, are we going to support NATO? We've seen through votes on the House and Senate floors strong, overwhelming bipartisan support and very few votes that are opposing supporting the alliance. When you look at the conversation we're having right now about our larger strategy and policy for the Middle East, and we start talking about our partners, the Syrian Kurds, we've actually seen that coalesce Republicans around, we need to support our partners who have tangibly demonstrated that they are helping us achieve our national objectives. So when we can tie it to very specific concrete examples, we are seeing a lot of agreement. When we're having a larger ideological discussion, I think that you are having more of a a conversation about, are we all on the same page? Tom, you 
talk a lot, I'm assuming, to foreign counterparts, folks visiting, allies. How are you sort of explaining what Jen just described as sort of a Republican frame around these issues? Well, what's what's interesting is I think, you know, we're in Washington, D.C., we're, we're endlessly fascinated by, by the goings-on, political goings-on, and we can find all sorts of uh, different divisions and variations, I think. You know, when I talk to a lot of allies, they don't see those things. I mean, I think they look at our pattern of, of behavior much, much more broadly. And I mean, that sort of takes me back to this idea of burden sharing, which I don't like the term. I think the metaphor is wrong. I think what we should be talking about is a way to help our partners do more and help our partners do more with us. And I think that's, you know, that's the type of, uh, of discussion that, that our allies really, really are looking for. Yeah. Mark, thoughts back on this topic? You, you, you see this split on the Republican side, that is, between what the strategy documents say and what the United States is doing on the one hand and then the president's tweets on the other. I think partly that split is due to the fact that the president hasn't quite figured out how to use the levers of government to achieve what he wants. Uh, and every once in a while you see an explosion there, for example, on Syria, uh, where he tries to uh, interject himself without doing the, the kind of bureaucratic, diplomatic precursors that uh, w- would more smoothly implement his policies. And I think it's also worth remembering that you know our, our close allies are also themselves democracies. <laughs> and right. and, uh, and their policies are also subject to democratic forces. Uh, and so I think they tend to understand that policymaking in a democracy can be, can be messy. And often that messiness is uh, on display for all at home and abroad to see. One of the issues that you hear most about on defense really is around use of forces or deployment of forces, which relates in some ways to this burden-sharing issue. Most recently, of course, the president's decision with regard to U.S. forces in northern Syria. But looking ahead and behind, if you will, there's certainly been discussion about U.S. military forces in Afghanistan and where they're going, this frame of the forever wars, which has come mostly on the left, but also the president, again, has, has framed things in this way. How do you think the issues around U.S. force deployments generally and maybe specifically U.S. military presence in the Middle East is going to play out in the coming year? I would say there's two issues that are always critical to stabilize the the conversation in Washington. The first is we need to understand how these deployments are linked to a strategy to achieve policy objectives. And when that piece gets overlooked, we tend to start having tough conversations in Washington. And the second piece is the consultation piece. When you look at the number of members who were not in Congress when 9-11 happened, who don't have that as a current memory for them, and then you ask them to support something without consulting them or without tying it back to the objectives, we get into trouble. The other thing I would say is we have talked a lot about the conversation in Washington. One of the areas what we need to do better at is reconnecting our policy conversations in Washington to the American people, tying it to their economic prosperity, tying it to the advancement of our values, our norms, our ethics. And this comes up, for example, in emerging technologies, but is certainly relevant here. Look, I'd say, uh, you know, across administrations, um, we've seen repeated 
desire to reduce our footprint in the Middle East or you know get out of the Middle East uh, and for you know I'd say partially understandable reasons uh, but at the same time there's there's the reality that the United States has interests in in, in the Middle East and and that uh, events in the Middle East including terrorism you know, can can affect Americans here at home and so as desirable, uh, as it is to just sort of wash one's hands of the Middle East, I think we're, you know successive administrations has, have found that extremely difficult to do in practice. I think Republicans and many Democrats also are haunted by the experience in Iraq. That is a feeling that the surge had reduced violence, the United States left, but did not create a stable political environment. And then uh, the su political situation collapses, ISIS comes in. And the fear that the same thing might happen in Syria or Afghanistan has pushed many, I think, to uh, support a, a, a longer um, commitment. If I may, I agree with that. And I would go a step further and say they're increasingly concerned about we understand what the military objectives are in the strategy. But help me understand where those start and where the political objectives start and what is our end state goal. We did an entire project on this question, and uh, what we found was that U.S. goals in Afghanistan had expanded over time. That is, starting with very limited goals to prevent the country from becoming a launch pad for terrorist attacks to a very expansive set of goals for nation building, you know, including you know, political involvement and economic development and rule of law and women's rights and the whole thing. And you see in the negotiations... The United States wrestling with this. Is it willing to reduce its goals and give up some of these very important human rights? Uh, or is, does it want to go for the full set of, of goals, which might imply decades of continued engagement? Well, and we had, of course, John McCain, a strong, maybe I would even say loud Republican voice representing that second camp inside the Republican Party. I'm not sure you have as much of that today. I can think of members who speak to that. Certainly Jim Mattis has said some things along those lines, um, both while he was Secretary of Defense and then subsequently. Is that is that really still out there, Jen? Is there still a um, segment of the Republican Party that sees a enduring strong military presence in the Middle East as something that is uh, supportive of long-term political goals? You know, it's impossible to replace the moral clarity that Senator McCain brought to many of these issues. But I do believe strongly that across both the Congress and in Washington, that there is still a consensus that it is important to be present. It's important to reassure our allies and partners. It's important to deter some potential competitors. And it is incredibly important to keep it a, a way game when we're dealing with counter ISIS and other extremist organizations. So one of the things, uh, Jen, that you brought up without using the, the phrasing, you, you talked about consultation, but one of the things we talked about in the last few episodes is this idea of new authorization for the use of military force or sp specificity around authorizations for the use of military force and a variety of contingencies that have come up. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the, the value of such a thing would be, or is it is it overstated uh, for those who advocate for it? And then maybe a little on the prospects around how we think about better consultation between the executive branch and the Congress on use of force issues. It's a very constructive conversation to talk about, do we need to update the AUMF? Do we need to update the political support 
that governs all of the operational authorities, the funding that goes into these operations. The one thing that we have not seen yet is what would a constructive replacement look like? And so right now the focus has been it is appropriate to have a conversation about updating it, but it needs to be an update with a concrete replace that it gives our diplomats, our military professionals, our intelligence professionals, the tools, and more importantly, the authorities that they would need. And we haven't seen that conversation mature yet. Tom, I want to ask you about one of the other big themes we've heard a lot from the administration, um, which is around competition, is typically how it's stated. Some people have talked about related terms, anything from malign influence, hybrid operations, gray zone challenges. But inside the executive branch, they're really using this frame of competition. Can you talk a little bit about how that is playing through in terms of where the Defense Department in particular needs to go in its mindset and capabilities? Yeah, I think we, we're we at a place now where government officials from, from the highest levels are talking, you just have to think about uh, Vice President Pence's recent speech, right, are, are talking about the reality of the multidimensional challenge that, that China and Russia play to the United States, to our, to our allies. And if we take that seriously, embedded in that, although we don't like to talk about it as, as openly, is, is the prospect that we might have to fight China or Russia. And so I think you know, DOD planning really does you know, need to center on those, on those possibilities. And if, again, if you take that seriously, there's a whole string of second, third order consequences that, that go with that. Uh, we need to be thinking much more seriously uh, than we have really in the past 25, 30 years about what a, you know, a large scale war would look like. That has implications for all sorts of things such as industrial mobilization, defense planning, and, and uh, the relationship between defense and industry, government and industry. So I think it's, uh, I, th- I think we're, we're at, the, at the front end of you know, real reconsideration of, uh, of defense and defense priorities. Do you, Antley, ask, do you expect defense in that way or maybe security in that way to play a big role in the, in the minds of voters in the coming year? I think those of us who care about defense every four years, yeah. we, we, we expect <laughs> defense to play a, a central role and we, you know, we expect to have this, the spotlight uh, shine on us. You know, rarely happens. I mean, uh, so I think the historian in me would say that, well, you know, maybe defense will come up or it'll come up in a debate or a couple debates. But that's probably it. Now, it might come up. If it comes up more, you know, more centrally, I think it'd probably be because of, you know, a disaster. And so let's let's hope that that's not the case. Is that does everyone share that view that it's probably not near the top of the issues that will come up? I I agree that if it comes up, it will be anchored to probably a specific country or a specific incident. I don't expect to have a strategic conversation about some of these long term issues. I agree. But I I think you're going to have some rhetoric around waste in the Department of Defense, a bloated defense budget without any specifics. Also, um, some issues about uh, nukes, I think, may also come up because that's one place where the two parties are clearly in a different place. Democrats lean more towards arm control, Republicans more towards uh, nuclear modernization. 
Yeah, and we're going to dig into both of those issues on our next episode. So I'm, I'm glad you raised them here. And by the way, that's the origin story of this podcast is we also don't expect here at CSIS that we're going to have a lot of discussion going on in the, in the mainstream, if you will, on defense. So we'll try to help out on that part of it. There are a couple of other issues that have animated the conversation around defense in the past few years. And of course, we talked a little bit already about Syria and Afghanistan, but counterterrorism more generally and how the United States has engaged in the fight since 2001 against radical Islamist groups. Again, there seems to be a bit of a shift in viewpoint that's happened since then to today across both the Obama and Trump administrations. But how do you think about where the United States is going next in this counterterrorism campaign set? And again, if there is a Republican mindset to that, how would you describe it? I think the Republicans on the whole are comfortable with the counterterrorism campaign. It doesn't mean that they support every element of it. But the notion that we will hunt down terrorists globally and use the assets we have available, for example, UAVs, to do that, I think has pretty broad support. I think it's on the Democratic left where you you see concerns arising uh, about that campaign, which up until now has been quite bipartisan. Any other views? I would agree with that. And I would just like to reinforce where I see an opportunity here is to make sure that we keep connecting this back to the American people. If you look at some of the major contenders in the 2020 presidential election, in many ways, they are reflecting an American public for whom 9-11 and some of these other terrorist events is a distant memory. And so I would say it's more a Washington has become a little bit isolated and needs to reach back and explain why we think consistent with our norms, values, ethics, and away game is the appropriate response. Where are you seeing that succeed? Are there are there breakthrough issues or people out there speaking in a way that's connecting to the voters that you admire? I would I would start, and this is a little bit self serving, but uh, Mac Thornberry has initiated a series of public speaking engagements because he really sees the disconnect. Every single time we've had something come up, we've eventually gotten to the right place, but it's gotten a little bit harder each time. And it's reinforced in our minds that we've taken a little bit for granted some of the foundational truths that most people who have been working in the national security space since 2001 take for granted. So he's working on that, and he's talking to other like-minded individuals about that need to reconnect the American people to what we're trying to do in Washington on their behalf. I would agree with that. And I think that that goes even broader than counterterrorism. I think it goes to support for a, a vigorous American presence across across the world. There's a very strong case to be made, but the case does have to be made. And I think uh, many of us who support that view of American international engagement unfortunately started to take for granted that the case just sort of made itself rather than us having to make the case. This connects, I think, closely to, you know, maybe a broad view of civil military relations or how well connected American society is to the military. There's the often quoted percent, you know, 1% of the American population is in the military. Um, I don't see a cause for that to grow significantly absent a major crisis. So this gets to this disconnect, Jen, that you in particular have pointed to a couple times already. Um, How do we think through a better way of connecting the military to society so that we ensure 
that when there's issues around should we use force, should we use forces, that we have an engaged electorate on these issues. Well, I think our competitors are in a way doing some of that for us. I mean, you referred to uh, foreign uh, malign political uh, influence. There's, you know, uh, malign economic statecraft. I mean, I, I think Americans broadly see a pattern of, of aggressive behavior out in the world. Doesn't mean that they're going to go down and, and sign up for the military tomorrow, nor should they. But I think. You know, there is a growing perception, and I think it's an accurate perception, that we live in a, in a more dangerous world. The things that we care about from American lives and property to our, to our allies to broader broader way of life, I think, are, are things that we actively need to defend. I agree. I think we have to have a conversation on the civilian side and within the Congress about uh, how we will use force, when we will use force. I'm very uncomfortable about any notion that the military ought to be leading that conversation because both parties would like to have the military standing on their side. There's been, I think, far too much politicization of uh, senior military leadership, particularly retired military. And I would like to get them out of that conversation uh, in the public sphere and have that continue among politicians and the civilian public. You have thoughts on how to help effectuate that change? Uh, you know, in the last election, I think Elliot Cohen came out with a piece and urged that senior military officers, retired officers not get involved. And I think that if we can build on that, get more and more officers saying that they're not going to be involved, that maybe you can build a, a set of a, a cultural norm that you won't have military officers on the stage at any of the conventions and appear to lend you know, the military to a particular partisan cause. So I want to loop back a little bit, pulling together many of the threads we've talked about already, which is the national defense strategy, the national security strategy of the Trump administration have emphasized China and Russia. And I would say for most people who the documents may say China and Russia, but for most people following the conversations, the particular focus is around China, the long-term competition with China. And at the same time, the day-to-day -day conversation, the bulk of energy being put forward is around these issues of Middle East policy and strategy. We're going to talk in the next episode, I think, in some depth about how you think about capabilities and budget. But just at the broad level, how are we doing in terms of getting focus in the American public, if that's the desired administration viewpoint um, around competition with China, making that something that connects for them and actually driving change across that national security toolkit with defense as one component? I actually think we're doing pretty well. And I would say just judging progress, um, say, over the last year, two years. Well, first, we're actually having the conversation and we're actually openly having the conversation. And I think that's one, you know, one positive attribute of the, of the current administration is the willingness to, to actually talk about these things. Vice President Pence has given two speeches. You know, at one level, you'd, you could say they were unremarkable speeches, except it was remarkable that it was the Vice President of the United States calling out China on malign behavior in a whole series of, of, of categories. So the conversation is going on, and I think that conversation is not just one going on with and between us here in Washington, D.C., but is increasingly a, a nation, nationwide. So I think that that is a necessary first step. I think you put your finger on a tension in our military posture, which is, on the one hand, we have 
strategy documents that look at great power competition, particularly China, but also Russia. On the other hand, every day we're sending forces out to regional conflicts, to crisis response, humanitarian uh, needs. And that split has put tension in all of the services. Do they have smaller forces that are very high tech or do they have broader, larger forces that can meet all these uh, many demands? And you see those tensions playing out. Many of the services have opted to have a spectrum of capabilities, but it's a good conversation to have. I'd like to emphasize some areas where I think if we can continue to move the conversation forward would be helpful. The first is when we talk about um, our relationship with China, and it's not just us. When you talk to allies and partners, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, there are many commonalities of their policy debates they're having in their capitals that I think we can leverage in terms of how do you both engage and compete with China at the same time. And that's across the entire range of our society and certainly theirs. And I think continuing to work with our business community on that is going to be critically important. The emerging technologies the trend lines of some of the places that Beijing wants to take those are not consistent with our ethics and our values. But we haven't really had a conversation in the United States about what our ethics and values are in some of these areas as well. So making sure that we don't frame this as a military response, but focus on some of these areas where getting it right means we wouldn't have a conflict with China is where I think our opportunity is right now. Let's close out with... Um tying this to the other instruments of power, which I think is this sort of been implicit in the conversation that we haven't talked about them because our focus is on defense, but to, to compete effectively, to make sure that we're countering influence, to make sure we have the positive narrative we need to have. We need more than just the military. Um, the administration has come under significant heat from on the Hill, pushing back against attempts to significantly reduce the State Department, as an example, other instruments. What's been helpful, if anything, in this conversation that we're having, and where do you think we need to go from here? Well, look, I think we are in a multidimensional competition, if we want to, if we want to use that word. I mean, that in some cases, competition you know, is, is too mild a description of what actually is is going on. Meaning that we're in your point being it could be considered conflict. A absolutely yes. right. Yeah. Absolutely right. When it comes to uh, you know, political warfare, when it comes to things going on in the cyber domain, I think it's I think uh, competition is too uh too too polite a, a term for it. And I think that that gets us to something that's vitally important, which is you know, here we are on a podcast talking about defense, and we tend to talk about peace versus war. And we in the United States are very comfortable with that dichotomy. But if you look at the way uh, Chinese writers think about it, you look at the way Russian writers think about it, they, they don't see that dichotomy. They don't admit that dichotomy. They see a, a spectrum, a spectrum of conflict and competition. And I think one of the things, you know, we need to accommodate ourselves to and adapt to is the fact that, yeah, we're competing with with states, with actors that are quite comfortable doing things that we neatly categorize as peace, but they're not peaceful and they don't have peaceful intent. And I think that speaks to the way DOD is organized. I think it speaks to executive legislative uh, matters. We, you know, we need to adapt. And it also, it does speak to, uh, to organization as well. We did have, uh, back during the Cold War, the tools for multidimensional competition. I'm not saying we need, we should reproduce those or we're in Cold War II or anything like that. 
But we've done it before, and I think it is worthwhile to at least go back and look historically at how not just DOD, but but the whole government and, and society adapted to a period of multidimensional competition as we as we think about going forward. I think we should recognize that the capabilities of the private sector are probably more important here. We always default to what can the government do, but for the United States, the private sector, I think, uh, has a much a greater reach. Uh, the example I use from the Cold War is West German TV. Everyone in East Germany could get West German right. TV, and they realized over time that their government was lying to them about conditions in the West, and that probably did more than to convince them about uh, the corruption of their own government than all of the pamphlets that the U.S. Uh, embassy produced. I agree with both my colleagues, but there's two points I want to reemphasize. The first is on the private sector. I do think we have to acknowledge that some of the areas in the spectrum of conflict that we're dealing with, the private sector has a much more complicated relationship. And I'm thinking mainly of the telecommunications companies, but there's others as well, that we need to respect and understand what issues and interests that they're balancing before we just assume that they're going to be an instrument of U.S. government policy. I think that's something we don't like to talk about a lot. The second thing going back is when we're talking about the spectrum of conflict and you ask Kath about how can we make sure it's a robust interagency process, to be blunt, usually people evaluate how much we value based on whether we're funding or not. And because we have pretty static phases of conflict right now and we're not having a conversation about what Russia and China are doing, I think beyond probably the administration, we don't talk about what authorities do people need and what resources do they need and do we have an outdated view about what they should have and when they have it. And if we can anchor the conversation that way, in many ways it ties it to are you going to fund this or are you going to fund that? And because we're not doing that, it's very easy to overlook not just state and AID, which we usually talk about, but DHS, FBI, Treasury with sanctions. We don't talk about it holistically because it's very easy to just ignore it until we have a problem. And then that's too late to start funding those activities and those people working those, those authorities. Are we going to get better in this particular area, which is this idea of integrating across the national security sector? Are we on a good pathway in the coming year as we approach the 2020 election? I will say no. I think this is a continuing frustration with the U.S. government, the, the difficulty in getting all the different agencies to work together in a chaotic uh, democracy. So we're always going to get a poor grade. I think we can maybe do a little better. Well, Mark Kansian, Tom Mencken, Jen Stewart, thanks so much for joining me today. The conversation will continue. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.